Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Thank you for joining the Hatchery. Emory Center for Innovation for Might Could, Tales of Innovation in the ATL, where we explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast in conversation with thought leaders and disruptors in nonprofits, higher education, and industry who are making Atlanta a city of the future. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Jamie Lackey, founder and CEO of Helping Mamas, an Atlanta-based nonprofit that works with agencies throughout Metro Atlanta to provide essential baby items and period products to families that need them most. After nearly 20 years as a social worker, Jamie saw firsthand that the mothers she served couldn't afford the basic necessities to care for their babies and children. The statistics remain staggering. One in three women in Georgia can't afford diapers. She also saw a gap in services with no public assistance programs to provide these products. So in 2014, she took a leap and founded Helping Mamas with a mission to collect and donate baby supplies to organizations who serve women and children in need throughout the state. Uh, Jamie successfully raised $100,000 in financial and $50,000 in in-kind donations in the first year alone, and has worked tirelessly to grow the organization to include over 150 partner agencies across Georgia. By 2018, Helping Mamas had grown into a 9,000-square-foot building serving nearly 60,000 children a year and distributing 2 million essential baby items, such as diapers, clothing, baby wipes, strollers, and car seats, throughout the state of Georgia, and now also in Knoxville, Tennessee. Jamie, congratulations on the remarkable success of Helping Mamas, and thanks so much for joining Mike Good today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I'd love to start things off today with an overview of Helping Mamas. Could you give us more information about what you do and how your work is different from that of other nonprofits who seek to serve women and children in the state? Absolutely. So you covered a pretty good synopsis in the intro, um, but Helping Mamas is essentially a baby supply and a period supply bank. So we collect and distribute essential items for women and children, and then we distribute those items um, to partner organizations that serve women and children in need. So if you think about it, anything that you would need birth to age 12 um, for a child, we probably have in our warehouse. And in 2018, we expanded to include period products as well. So what happens is we rely on our fabulous community to do drives and donate. Um, we work with corporate supporters and sponsors um, to provide product for us. And then we work with a great group of volunteers and staff to sort, organize, and get it ready. And then we get it ready and we distribute it in a couple of ways. One, we have um, social workers throughout uh, the state come and they do what we call shopping. It's all free, but they come and pick out um, items for the families that they're serving. Um, but we also have a mobile distribution program where we take our van out into um, the community uh, in areas that are hardest hit and have least access to resources. And we'll do um, distribution days where we distribute these products directly into the community. So that's a little bit about how we work and how we operate. 
That's a great question about what makes us different. Well, we're the only folks that do this um, in, you know, in Atlanta. It was a really, like you said, you know, when you look to innovate and you look to do new things, you look for the gap, right? You look for the things um, that aren't aren't being done and aren't there, but there's a need. And there was no coordinated effort to get things like diapers um, to families that needed them. We had seen, you know, a lot of progress with food, with food banks, the Atlanta Community Food Bank. You know, they were really doing a great job with getting food, but there are other basic needs, other basic essential items that families need to thrive. And so we started helping mamas in order to be able to meet that gap in service because these items are just as important um, to families um, as food are because without diapers, you can't go to childcare and without childcare, you can't go to work. And so we wanted to make sure that families had a steady supply of diapers so that they could stay employed, keep their kids in really great early childhood education programs and move themselves forward. So I'm curious, you, you spoke a bit about the gap and the need and that's a great overview of sort of your focus and operations. I'm wondering if you could give us a bit more insight into how you identified specific gaps and then how you match those to the right opportunities. That's a great question. So, you know, I have been a social worker um, for, over 20 years, almost 20 years at the time when I started it. And in, in, when you're in social work, you kind of go into a lot of different fields, right? Like you, you, I've worked with refugees, I'd worked in a hospital setting, I you know, worked in just a variety of adult literacy and people's basic needs you know, were the same. It was consistent. It didn't matter where, where they were from, what population I was serving, basic needs were the same. And the thing I kept seeing happening you know, when I was supervising a parenting program, reading parenting, you know, case notes where families were using grocery bags as uh, plastic grocery bags as diaper, reusing disposable diapers, washing them out in sinks. And it just, you know, uh, at the time I was, I had smaller children, they were elementary school and preschool age, so not quite infants, but knew the stress of being a mom and knew how incredibly hard it was with a good support system. I had a great support system. Um, you know, two jobs with myself and my husband, and it was still really hard. And so it just really made me think about the families that I'd encountered and worked with over the years. And wow, what an incredible struggle it is if you don't have that support and you don't have that access um, to those things. So um, just through general experience, saw that it was a problem and started doing research like you know, why are, why can't we find diapers? Who is, why are we only at, you know, kind of at the grace of someone who knows we may have a parenting program in this particular office and may do a diaper drive for us, you know, like uh, most organizations, they raise money for their programs and services, not for the extras that their family needs, because that's not their mission. Um, and then they didn't have the means to store it. So we would have people show up with a whole bunch of items and there's no place to store it. We don't have a warehouse, you know, that's not the services we provide. And so all of that just kind of started coming together and we thought, well, maybe we could do this and did some research and there was no one doing it in Atlanta. There was a few doing it across the country at the time and just kind of took that to heart and saw how a couple of other organizations had grown really quickly in, in cities that were similar to ours and thought, let's give this a go and see what we can do. So I have a follow-up on that question because I think you've put your finger on something uh, that's really interesting um, indirectly. We often sort of at the hatchery as we're uh, speaking with faculty and staff, uh, tried to describe what it is that we're doing in terms of innovation and how these processes can be applied to a whole uh, host of human needs. 
And there's a tendency to conflate innovation and entrepreneurship right away. Mm -hmm. But although some of the, the fundamental human discovery you know, uh, work is similar, ultimately, once you stumble on, on the, the need and the solution, your problems around scale are very different because right. the entrepreneur who discovers a fundamental human need uh, has a really scalable uh, revenue source, whereas a lot of times someone in, in services industry or uh, in nonprofits who discovers a fundamental human need just has a really big problem uh, to scale the solution to, right? So it's a very different equation. Um, the bigger uh, the need you identify, the bigger the challenge of scaling to meet that need, uh, whereas an entrepreneur would have a very different uh, response there. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the particular challenges of being a nonprofit innovator um, mm -hmm. and uh, some of the ways that you've thought creatively and innovatively about uh, scaling your response to a need. Right, that's a great question. And and yes, they're very different. Had I had I created a product, had I created you know a store or something, I would go out and get investors, right? Like this is this is this is what I think your ROI is. This is what I think is going to happen. This is what I think we've got, and and would be able to show that. And it's been a lot different when you're a nonprofit. Even as a as a young nonprofit, um, you know the nonprofit industry is highly regulated, and people um, that you know really are into donating want to see a history, right? They want to know what you've done before they before they donate, right? They wanna see that history. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur, it's more about the future, right? It's about what you can do in the future and where you think you can go. Whereas if you like in the nonprofit industry, it's like, show me what you've accomplished because I'm partying with something. I need to connect to a cause, but I need to so, see what you've already done. And so that was a big difference right off the bat, right? Like, well, I have done nothing because we just started. And um, that was a, that's a big thing. So, but interestingly enough, I approached it the same way I would. I've always said I run um, helping mamas like a, like you'd run a business, right? Like our donors are our investors, and I really looked at myself, and it was really hard because um, when you start something, you have to rely on a brand or a name, and I I had to be the face of the organization. It was my experience in the field that carried that in the beginning. So at the beginning, I was selling two things, right? My, the mission, like this is the need, this is what's here. I can show you the need all day long, and here's why I'm the person that can can make that happen because I have X Y Z skill set. Um, and so that is how I kind of married the two. So for the first few years, it was like, this is what's happening. And then thankfully there were people that had paved the path before me um, in LA, uh, baby to baby in Los Angeles. They had gotten started about a year or two ahead of us and had a similar model and just had spectacular growth. And I was like, hey, look, like they're a couple of years ahead of us. And this is what they've done with what, they, what they've been given. We're Atlanta, why can't we do the same thing? And so, I took those kind of three things, right? Um, here's the need and the mission. Here's how I can successfully accomplish these goals. And here's somebody else that's been successful. And so that was how we got donors in the beginning. Also, one of the things when you're a very mission-related organization, this is all about the mission. This is about people connecting and wanting to help women and children. I've always said when you get people to donate, it's because they see something of themselves in that, right? Like 
if you've had a family member with breast cancer, you're more likely to donate to a breast cancer cause. My child's a diabetic, so we do a lot of donating to things that are related to diabetes. Well, what I had to do, I was like, we're all moms. We're all parents. Like, we know what this feels like. This is so hard. And so I really looked to unite everybody kind of together. Like, yes, we have some families that are struggling to make ends meet. And we have some families that are not. But we all love our kids. We all want the same thing for our kids. There's no doubt about that. So I kind of had to find those commonalities and branch that with the mission with what my skill set was with what I had seen somebody else do elsewhere. And that's the package we presented over the first couple of years of growing. So it's a very systematic and logical approach. Uh, one of the things that I notice about the approaches people take to innovation work is that uh, sometimes they're informed by previous professional experience, but I also think they're often informed by uh, the disciplinary studies uh, that people have done up to that point. And I think that that's a, an interesting thing to note in the context of a center that uh, works with a lot of student innovators. Uh, I wonder if you could maybe reflect um, on how social work prepared you to be an entrepreneur uh, in the nonprofit space. Um, it strikes me that a lot of the students of nursing, social work and public health that we see are very much human-centered designers. They mm -hmm. empathize with end-user needs. They carefully define these human problems, and then they try to prototype and test fixes with an eye to delivering scalable solutions, which is something that you've really already kind of alluded to. So I wonder if you could reflect a bit on how your studies as a social worker may have helped you to identify and define these problems and then to deliver the right solutions. Sure. So, and, and, you know, knowing, you know, nursing and public health, we work so closely with those skills as well with what we do. Um, by nature, we're problem solvers, right? Like as a social worker, as a nurse, as a public health person, there is a problem in front of you and you have to solve it. And you have to solve it with very little resources. There's not a lot of resources dedicated to a lot of the things um, that people in these fields are working in. And you have to do it on the spot. And so right there, there's just this general sense of creativity, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're in your field working that you just have to have, it's innate. You will just automatically, there's this creative sense of here's this problem. I've got to fix it right now with whatever I have in front of me. And it just kind of breeds that. I always found like I would get unhappy in positions once I had built a program, right? Like I built it, it was there. And then I was like, well, I need to create something else now. Like we, we did that. And so for me personally, that's just how I am. I like to create and grow and build. But I think as social workers, we're taught to look at our environments and we're taught to look at everything around us. And then how do we use everything around us to solve the problems for these families or this community, this population that we're looking for. And so it just naturally to me bred into entrepreneurship. Yes, no, they don't teach business. No, they don't teach uh, marketing and PR and all of that in social work or logistics, which I have to do logistics now running a warehouse. They don't teach all of that in social work, but they do teach those basic skills of let's be creative. Here's what you've got. What are you going to do next? And that's really what you look at when you're an entrepreneur. That's interesting. It's it's really a combination of human-centered design, lean startup, and, and sort of creative responses. In that optic, one of the things that really strikes me about the solution you've identified is that you didn't try to do it all yourself, uh, which is a trap that I see many well-motivated young innovators fall into. Instead, 
it seems you really focused initially on the acquisition side and handled distribution through other established nonprofits uh, that had existing relationships of trust with the community. And then later you added a mobile program so that you could directly target the high impact locations that were maybe insufficiently served. Is that a good summary, first of all? And then how did you decide where to focus first and then how to scale uh, over time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the reason I, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we did. Um, and I, I chose that approach for a couple of reasons. One, being a social worker, I had been the frustrated person that couldn't find the resources and wanted to be a service, not only for our end users, the families, but for the social workers. I wanted them to have more time to spend in direct service. So if I knew they could come one place all the time and get what they need, that would help them professionally. So I thought, well, in order to do that, I need to connect with other nonprofits. But you're absolutely right. Like we did that because we knew we needed to connect with other people that had a history and were already doing the good work, right? And, and said, hey, like this is a great program. We're partnering with them because we need this and no one else is. So that's how we did it. Um, and, you know, it's really funny. It's happenstance. You know, I reached out at first, you know, you're like trying to sell like, hey, like this is, you think it's going to be hard. But it wasn't like I went through, I reached out to um, our first partner agency is, was Childkind and they um, work with foster children that have complex medical issues. And I had a good friend that worked there and um, I was like, hey, like I know you guys may have these needs and this is what I'm trying to do. Would you be willing to partner with us? And they were like, absolutely. So immediately we signed on with them with a memorandum of understanding. We provided them a few things at first. We did some social media around it that got some attention. Um, and then I had someone that had a connection with Atlanta Mission. I believe Atlanta Mission, um, who's been around forever, you know, they had a women's shelter and I had a contact there and I just reached out and I said, hey, this is what we're doing for child kind. Could we do the same thing for the women in your shelter? And they were like, sure. So we slowly started building that. And the first year we started, we had like six or seven partners. And by the end of the second year, we weren't even accept, we were not, we couldn't even accept any more partners. We had to, we had, they were coming to us because the need was so big. So I just really strategically used connections I had. Um, and also part of it is I knew I couldn't screen every single person that needed help. I wasn't, it was just me and I was, you know, not getting paid to do this work at the beginning, you know, I had to do the best I could. So I needed reliable sources that could say, I could go to donors and say, hey, I know the families that need this are truly engaged in programs and services because I'm working with child kind. I'm working with Atlanta Mission. I'm working with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And they all say that this family needs it. And so I just took a little layer of work out that I didn't have you know, the capacity to do. It's really rare, I think, to speak with somebody who identified a problem so clearly and figured out a solution that was both a solution for potential partners who could help you and a solution for you simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just point to the fact that I think a big part of the innovation of helping mamas from the perspective of an outsider looking in has been the work you've done in communications. Uh, it sounds like initially those conversations were so important to get the ball rolling and then some of the social outreach that you mentioned and then the inbound request quickly overwhelmed your ability even to reach out i think that uh it's pretty rare to see that level of communications uh innovation uh coupled with that level of uh sort of problem solution innovation 
And when I visited the Helping Mamas homepage, I was really struck by the simplicity of the positioning and the call to action. So it says right up front, Helping Mamas is the baby supply bank of Georgia. And then beneath that, um, it says uh, that there are three buttons, right? Three calls to action, donate items, donate dollars, donate hours. And then beneath those buttons, uh, you have the words, did you know? And then that's essentially it above the fold, which is to say before you sort of scroll down. And I'm not sure in truth that I've seen another website and certainly I don't think one for another nonprofit that's clearer or more effective than that. And I don't think most people appreciate how hard it is to arrive at that level of clarity in both purpose and function with your communication. So I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe any false starts you had in determining the strategic focus or of your organization or of telling its story. Uh, it sounds like you really got traction right away because you saw a way to frame this as delivering a solution to the partners who would then deliver uh, the products. But I'm wondering if, if there were or were any missteps and also if there was a particular tipping point moment when you realized the solutions were coming together, you were gaining the traction and things were really humming. Yeah, all of those things. Um, so I think if you don't have false starts and you may not be doing it right, right? Like you learn from error and you learn from your false starts. And um, and as a perfectionist, I had to learn to accept those false starts as the, the way to move forward. And that was really hard for me for a while. Um, but yeah, you know, with our, thank you so much for the words on your website. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do that. Have a fabulous company um, in Knoxville, New Frame Creative who created it, but really and truly, um, when we revamped that, our team, um, we have Vista workers who are like Peace Corps for the United States. They spend a year with us and our staff. You know, we just like started talking about all the websites that we visited and what did we not like about it? What did we want to know in the first two seconds of looking at it? Um, and that's really how we came to that. We just wanted it to be easy and clear and ready to go because the mission is easy and clear and ready to go. If you want to help women and children, all you have to do is donate diapers, period products, whatever, and we'll get them out. And so our, our website needs to reflect that. But you no, know, at the beginning, it was very confusing. I will say a lot of people didn't understand how we worked. They were like, well, so can the moms come directly to you? And we were like, no, because I mean, for a long time, I was a staff of one person and I was doing eight jobs. There was no way I could effectively serve an entire community by myself with they were all coming to me. So um, there was a lot of missteps there on trying to communicate. You no, know, we actually don't we give directly to partner agencies. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge at first. We had to rework our messaging around that. This is why this works. This is why we use this intermediary. This is why you should give directly to us and not our intermediary. Like all of those things we had to clarify. Um, so I would say for us, you know, just really getting out how simply it is that we work um, was a huge mess up at the beginning. That's why it's so clear now because we were all like, well, it makes sense to us. Why doesn't it make sense to anybody else? And then it was like, oh, okay, well, if you go to our website, it's really actually not that clear. We tell you what the problem is but we're not real clear about how we solve it, right? Other than just give us diapers, we'll get them out. We're not clear about that. So we spent a lot of time around that. So I would say for us, that was um, something we had to learn and hone in on in this step. I'm sure when it all came together, um, I always say you're gonna have, sometimes you have these perfect storm, storm moments and we're having one, um, probably we've had one through 2020, 2021, but we had one when I first started. So 
I did this for a long time on the side, just, you know, after hours of my other job, my kids helped me a lot, family and friends were helping me a lot, just thought this is a nice little passion project. And then a few things happened at the exact same time. And you were like, I've got something and now's the time to go all in or we walk away completely. And so those things kind of culminated at one time. Um, we won the United Way of Atlanta, their first ever Spark Prize Award, which is a, um, a prize that they give um, to new nonprofits um, to have the most innovative approach to impacting poverty. So we went through a pitch contest and we learned to tell our story and we won that and we got a large, you know, uh, it was like $20,000 to start. Um, we had a private family foundation that heard about us and got behind us and gave a large donation at the same time. And then we worked really closely with Baby to Baby in Los Angeles and flew to LA and learned from them and helped form a national network and got some um, corporate support and donation support from them as well. And it all happened at the same time. It all seemed to happen when we got our messaging right and together and people really got it. And we were able to get a building and I was able to take a small salary at first but start getting paid. Um, and then it just grew from there. So that was our first real critical, it all came together um, everybody's got the right synergy. We're saying the right things and people are getting behind us. So I think the uh, intentional work that you did around clarifying those communications is really obvious. Um, so often people are good at articulating the problem they want to solve, but not necessarily as good at helping the public to connect with them as an organization around how they're going to solve it. And so I want to go back for a second to these three buttons, these three calls to action of uh, donate items, donate dollars, donate hours, which uh, seems to be a really intuitive and kind of frictionless way for the public uh, uh, to connect. I'm wondering if there's one of those that has been a harder sell than the others and what you do to amplify connections to the easy pathway while also lowering resistance uh, to the harder one. And is that mostly a marketing and communications fix or are there really other factors at work? So there's a couple of factors that work. And if you'd asked me that question pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, I may have different answers. Um, because the world has changed for everyone, including nonprofits and how we engage. So we had a very small building to start with. We had about 2,500 square feet. Um, we couldn't host large volunteer groups, but what we were seeing was that volunteering was the way that people wanted to get involved with us. People wanna be active, they wanna get involved in their community and they want you to give them the tools to do that. Um, so we raised money and we went to a different building. Um, so now we have almost 10,000 square feet and we can host large volunteer groups. And what we were seeing was once we got people in so that the easy ask was just come give us a couple hours of your time. And people are looking for those opportunities. They would understand and see hands on what we did. And that drove the donate, the donate dollars and donate products. Um, they're like, oh, well, my youth group is doing a drive. Can we just add to a drive for you all? Or our school group needs some community service hours. Um, we see how you're using that. Can we do that? Or my company does matching um, you know, funds for every volunteer hour I have. Can we connect you with them? And it just, that, that, that reaction just slowly grew and grew. So to me, it was like the, if you build it, they will come. And that's what we did. We went for a bigger building. Um, we, host, we hosted pre-pandemic, um, huge groups and we were, just like rocking and rolling and it was fantastic. We had all these corporate groups, everything was flowing right. And then 2020 hit 
and a very small staff um, had to deal with zero volunteers in our building with a massive increase in need. And so from a marketing perspective, what happened 2020, 2021 so far has been the product donations have come in as well as the financial donations because people still want to be involved, but everybody isn't necessarily comfortable coming out, um, which we totally understand. Um, you know, so that really flipped for us and we had to really adjust how, how we operated because we went from having a smaller budget to a much larger budget. Um, and we just kind of had to adapt. And now what's really lovely is that people are coming back out and volunteering and we're seeing all three of those things kind of align, you know, and it'll be interesting to see as we go into 2022, how that plays out, what's gonna, what's gonna tip the scales more one way or the other. People are just gonna be so excited if the pandemic gets better to come back out more and we'll see more, we'll just be really interested. I mean, during the pandemic, we had, neighborhoods hosting drives like leave stuff on your front porch we'll come pick it up for helping mamas you know we had photographers hosting like front porch projects you stay on your front porch I'll do a family photo and instead of paying you donate to helping mamas you know just creative ways the community wanted to be involved um because they couldn't come out and see us in person so it's interesting, I will say I've spoken with a lot of founders, a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs in various sectors of the city. I don't think I've heard such a spontaneous and end user driven, uh, you know, creative response to an organization that I think really speaks to how much your, your mission resonates with the people that want to support you. Uh, the fact that they came up with these creative solutions for how to do that is, is pretty remarkable. I don't want to lose track, though, of, of three things, three little words I said before, which is the last thing you see above the fold uh, yeah. on your site is the did you know, dot, uh -huh. dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you scroll down, you see uh, statistics that are really pretty surprising and disheartening, to be honest, in many ways about the impacts of period poverty and diaper need, uh, including the fact that 40% of low-income families have to choose between diapers and food for their child, which is, you know, in a country of these resources, really startling to me. And while nonprofits like Helping Mamas have continued to grow into filling that need, I think it still speaks to a larger kind of cultural challenges. So I'm curious, given the, how, the clarity with which you've thought this through from the standpoint of what you can deliver, if you were able to address these needs at the highest level, say via national government or almost unlimited funding, what root issues would you go after first in order to deal with a lot of these secondary issues that you're addressing? In other words, what do you see as some of the bigger problems uh, in our society that are causing some of these basic human needs to go unmet? Well, it's antiquated policy, right? Like that, that is a huge part of it. And so we work really closely with the National Diaper Bank Network um, to lobby and, and advocate at a federal level for changes in some of these policies. So you have things like um, SNAP, which is food stamps, and you have um, WIC, which is women, infant, and children. None of those things allow for the purchase of diapers or anything critical for children outside of food. So it's almost assuming that these pills that all a child needs is food, which we know is not true. And so what we have done is we've started working with legislators um, in Congress, uh, you know, at national and state levels to look at things like 
what does it look like to study diaper need and have a, a, a national diaper distribution program where we as diaper banks distribute diapers with federal funds um, to families that qualify and let's look and see what that impact is on, on the communities. We're already doing that. We're already engaged in research um, at a national level right here in Atlanta. We have a research project going on with National Diaper Bank Network to look at the economic um, impact of diaper banks in communities so that we can start affecting that and pushing that needle. Um, those bills were created um, as an agriculture. That was, they were all ag related and they fall under ag. So there's, that's the reason there's no products, but nobody ever thought to come back and readdress that. And what I think what most places, whether it's food or whether it's banks like ours, what we're looking is, when you think about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're looking at the most basic level. We saw a shift in social services, I feel like, I mean, I can't research it and study it, but I feel like from my experience, we went to this really hardcore, like we have to do evidence-based program. It has to be really strong. It has to be rigid, research rigored. You know, it's gonna be so tough. And, you know, that's what we're gonna implement. We're gonna ask parents to go to job training and parenting education, GED, and we stop providing basic needs. How can you expect people to engage in these higher level of things when they can't put diapers on their children, when they can't pay their light bills, when they are moving from place to place because they can't pay rent? We were we took this expectation of do this without meeting here at the basic level. And so that's what we are looking to address. And that's what I feel like what we do well um, in terms of poverty is that we have to address basic needs. Everybody should have access to basic needs. It just, it should. In this country, you should have access to your most basic needs. And so that is what we look at legislatively. Um, across the country, some states have inactive um, TANF waivers where you can get a, a waiver for diapers. Um, it's not a lot, but it, but it helps. And so those are the issues where we're trying to move the needle and we think it's really important. Um, awesome that food's thought about everybody needs to eat but every child needs a diaper you know every administrator needs a period product um, those are not wants those are needs and so trying to find ways um, at a policy level to help impact that is really key that answer is just so i think it touches on so many bigger issues that we tend to forget about but also that culturally we seem to be unwilling to listen to um, this country seems to have an increasingly hard stance against providing for basic human needs and instead seems to be going all in on pathways to making everyone take care of their own needs. And I think that goes hand in hand with some of the uh, directions that you've mentioned services have gone in recent years towards education, towards uh, it, there seems to be an aversion to uh, certain types of fundamental support. Uh, and I don't know if that's a, a bridge into my next question or more of an observation, but um, I guess I am curious, you've alluded to some of what you're doing in a research and policy level to try to uh, address bigger opportunities, but in terms of things that are really specifically in your control, what do you see as the next big opportunity for helping mamas to achieve that next level capacity and, and uh, kind of impact? So would it be more fundraising, uh, human resource acquisition uh, to scale operations? Would it be logistics to improve efficiencies or tacking, tackling uh, sort of regulatory and policy things at the local level? I'm just curious what sorts of things you might want to address 
uh, optimize or what sorts of new programs or services you might really want to add. Yeah, so um, what we're, uh, and what you kind of see in this in this world is that all of those need to happen at the same time to be successful. And a lot of times you don't have the resources to do that. So we're trying to take advantage of what we have right now, which is a lot of people who want to engage and help with either expertise or, um, you know, donations, what, what have you, like we're trying to engage all of those folks that, that have heard about us because of the pandemic and engage them in our mission so that we can address all of those things. Um, so yes, fundraising is, a, is a, always a must and it's a need because that drives the human resources piece because we do have to have more staff available to go to more places to distribute more items. That's just, that's what it is. Um, what we're looking to do over the next 12 to 24 months is uh, increase our mobile programming. So we're going to more places on a regular basis. We hit a lot of the state as it is now, but it's not regular and it's not consistent and consistency is what these communities need. And so we're looking at um, expanding into uh, working with the health departments in school districts. Um, what we saw in the pandemic, where did people go when the schools were shut down to get food and everything went to schools. And so we started reaching out to schools and saying, hey, if you're already providing these kinds of items, um, can we come alongside and provide diapers? And we just found this beautiful partnership with a lot of schools. And so now we're trying to go back into some more rural areas. Schools are back open and a lot of them have care closets. Okay, well, we would love on a regular basis to make sure they have all these other things as well. So we're looking at engaging more of our educational system because that's where so many people feel comfortable going. And in a lot of small areas, there's not a lot of nonprofits and there are not a lot of services, but there are schools, um, there's health departments and people will go there. So we're trying to scale up in a way that doesn't make us have to have so much infrastructure where we have to have a site and an office, but that we could deliver our products out to the areas that are already distributing things to go alongside with that. So that's one of our our big focus is, um, and yes, we need more, more funding, more bodies and more vehicles um, to make that happen. So that's a big focus. The second piece is legislatively. Um, we work with a group called Georgia Stomp, um, which is a group of women's organizations that advocate um, down at the Georgia State Capitol for a reduction of uh, taxes on period products. And then we're working with the Athens Area Diaper Bank um, and we're going to try to advocate for either one, a waiver um, for families receiving CANA for Medicaid to receive diapers and or um, the reduction of or re elimination of taxes on diapers, which has been successful in other states. That's a long term, very long process, but that is on our radar because we have to implement change at both places on the ground where it's needed and in the systems where um, it's keeping the folks from going forward. So this speaks to broader ecosystem to a large degree, and uh, you even mentioned that you would want to find uh, solutions to scaling without really building out more internal infrastructure, which speaks to the need to really work effectively within an ecosystem. I'm curious from the standpoint of this show, Mike Could, about the Atlanta ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'd like to maybe reframe your story slightly as part of this story of Atlanta. The Atlanta innovation ecosystem, it seems to me, is incredibly varied. Um, the city is a leader in so many sectors from fintech to transportation, to healthcare to media, and increasingly in startups related to those sectors. 
but it's also the home to an enormous and thriving nonprofit ecosystem. So I'm really curious from your standpoint, being so entrenched in this world, what unique attributes of this city do you believe spur such innovation diversity? You know, I, that's such a great question. And I, you know, Atlanta's my adopted hometown. I've lived here for over 20 years now. And I think the thing that I love about it is that, is that there's all this innovation. And I don't know if it happened because of the airport and where this hub where everybody flies in and out of and it just grew from that. Um, but you know, there's so many exciting things that happen in Atlanta on a regular basis. You know, you may have some cities that are known for one thing, but I feel like Atlanta's known for so many different things and that attracts so many different types of people. Um, and there's just constantly that synergy here. And one of the things too about the city, it's not just necessarily in the city of Atlanta, right? Like we have these sprawling suburbs where people have continued to grow out. And so it's not all contained in one place. All that energy, I feel like has spread out into the suburbs. I mean, a perfect example, my son um, in his middle school and in our, in our high school cluster, they teach entrepreneurship as, as a class and as a program. Um, and it's a huge part of the curriculum, you know, and I think we see that what how successful Atlanta's been and now we're teaching that to our kids right so it's just continuing that on and continuing that on and I think Atlanta, like I said, whether it's the sports world um, that brings people to us whether that's the entertainment world whether it's the tech world. Um, everybody's coming here to learn and solve problems. Um, you know, we, we launched the civil rights movement and we just keep launching movements and launching movements. And I think that is a big part of, of why Atlanta is such a great place to innovate. So I'm curious, how would you say that this bigger picture of Atlanta has most impacted your work, both as founder and CEO of Helping Mamas, but also as just an innovative citizen of the city who's interested in helping others to innovate? That, but that, that's it. I think what I did early on was I reached out to other women that were entrepreneurs, not necessarily whether they were nonprofits, whether for profits, you know, tech, whatever it was. I started reaching out to other women entrepreneurs that were in either further ahead of me, um, maybe a little behind me, where I was, and I just started meeting with them and talking with them and building a support network of people um, that you know, understood what, what it's like to start something. And there's so many different groups out there and ways to participate and find that support and that peer network. And what's really cool is a lot of the women that I reached out to that were at the same place that I was when we started have grown as well. And they've grown with us. And now they're great supporters of the work we do. And they're the ones that help spread our message as well, because we did all this growing together. And that for me about Atlanta has been the biggest piece is I mean, I've met people all over the city in all different industries doing so many different things. And I, because of my woman, you know, really worked with women. And that to me has what's helped it helping mamas grow is just reaching out to other innovators who might. And sometimes it's just like, this is hard work. Like, I don't need an answer. I just need someone to let me say, this is so hard. Like, how are we doing this? And um, those connections really, really move me forward. So one of the things that's been clear to me throughout this conversation is that you have both a willingness and a, a real capacity for reaching out to others and just starting conversations. And I think 
that is such a crucial characteristic of uh, you know entrepreneurs and innovators who are going to succeed. But I'm also curious uh, for those who may not be as good at creating those personal connections, what sort of Atlanta experiences or resources or centers would you encourage other innovators like you to seek out? So sure, I mean, depending on um, what it is that you're interested in doing, there's a lot of different groups. I mean, obviously there's Atlanta Tech Village, but I believe it went under another Atlanta Venture, I believe, or I can't remember, I think it went under a name change. There's Plywood People, which takes social entrepreneurs, whether it is um, a nonprofit or a social enterprise where you want to give back, they're a great resource. Um, you know, the... Um, there's another one in the city and I'm blanking on my name. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up really quickly, but um, there's so many different groups like that out there that you can go and apply even just to be a oh, civic center for innovation um, is another, is another excellent, excellent one where you can go and take classes and learn and meet connections where it's not really frightening because they're all there learning and doing the same thing. And those are all really great places to reach out. Um, in the nonprofit se sector, the Georgia Center for Nonprofits has great resources and great classes in education. Um, and even, I believe, you know, people that you can talk to, they're like consultants that can talk with you there. Those are all really um, excellent resources that you can plug into in the city. That's a great, excuse me, that's a great list. Um, and I think a lot of those fly under people's radar. Uh, the Atlanta Tech Village, I think is a, a broader, uh, has a broader reputation in the city for entrepreneurs, but I think the uh, Civic Center for Innovation and Georgia Center for Nonprofits tend not to get some of the uh, attention they, they deserve. And so I'm, I'm really glad you called those out. I have one final question for you, and then I'd love to open this up to questions from the audience. Um, and so if you're in the audience and you have a question, please put that in the chat. In my experience, innovators are both highly attuned to human needs and also rarely satisfied with the status quo. So uh, before we turn to questions from the audience, I'd like to know what particular needs you're still seeing in Atlanta or elsewhere in the world that you really want to address at some point in the future? That's a really dangerous question. Um, because, <laughs> yeah, I am one of those people, I'm so proud of the work we've done and I'm committed to being here until as long as I can be. But um, there's so many things for me um, personally that are interests, maybe not necessarily you know, but for me, a lot of veterans issues are really key and really important. And I think there's a lot of creative work that can be done around um, the work with veterans. That That's something that's really um, inspiring to me. Um, I also, um, what's really cool about what we get to do is that we take a lot of, like I said, VISTA members. And so it's like Peace Corps for the United States. And a lot of times for us, we look for recent college grads, right? Because there's an educational stipend at the end that can help with student loans. And a lot of the folks that we work with, whether they're our interns or our VISTAs, the increasing student loan debt, like how much they are in debt and having, can't even come out of school making enough money to pay for their debt. Um, innovation around that, I think is key and critical for our folks coming out of college. So those are two, for me, personal issues that I would love to figure out um, you know, solutions to in the future. Yeah, those are both near and dear to us here uh, at Emory as well. Uh, so there are some questions coming in for the audience. Uh, the first, uh, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing from your very ex impressive experience. 
I've heard many nonprofit innovators talk about the desire to create the quote, one-stop shop, all the services a population might need in one place. You almost took the opposite approach of really specializing in an area and dispersing that service. And I would add to that person's question and then working with others uh, to deliver. So do you have a general thoughts uh, about the one-stop shop versus specializing approaches? You know, I've heard one-stop shop for years. I can remember 20 plus years ago doing projects on it in school and grad school, right? So it's an idea that's been around there a long time. And um, being innovative and an innovator, I wonder if it's been around that long, why haven't we, there's something that's there that's not going to work, right? Like, so I went the opposite way. I mean, for, for reasons, um, it takes a lot. People need a lot. And um, you'd almost have to have a 30,000 square foot warehouse to do what needed to be done, right? It's a lot. Um, and that's a lot to replicate over and over and over again. And the needs are so vast and people have different needs at different times in their life. And so I think I do like having people that specialize in what they do. However, what we feel like our role here at Helping Mamas is we connect so many organizations because we're like the central point. So we'll have a social worker come in, like perfect example. We had some a social worker that had a family in a shelter and the child was autistic and they didn't have any social workers there. Well, we know that we have child times that works with um, folks that have that issue and we connected them, right? So it's having those connector pieces that creates the one-stop shop through the specialization. And that's another mission of ours is how do we create that one-stop shop without having to be everything to everybody? Another perfect example, um, we knew um, a refugee provider, um, no, we had a, a healthcare, children's healthcare in Atlanta needed a blender uh, for a feeding patient, they needed, the family couldn't afford a blender. Well, I knew a refugee resettlement agency that we worked for had an abundance of, of those kinds of products that they couldn't use. And so I connected them and the family got a blender, right? Like it's those kinds of connections that matter. I don't know that you necessarily have to create a one-stop shop. What you do have to do is talk um, and connect. And so that's what we try really hard to do here is to connect because people are already doing great work. They just need to be connected to each other. So that raises a follow-up question for me, which is, it seems like a very logical approach to leverage existing resources, connect those, become a one-stop shop, not through building out your own infrastructure and services, but by being this point of connection that really does the triage work and, and points people to the right place. But there is a different set of challenges there, because what is your database for making sure you're aware of all the places you can direct people? Uh, how do you go about managing those points of connection to not have multiple lines of communication? In my experience, the founders and CEOs of nonprofits often become that database and that connector, but that's an entire, almost separate job from their, their primary function. So I'm curious if you have some pointers on that front or, or some effective strategies that you could share. Yeah, so one of our, per yeah, no, I mean, that's true. Yes, the, you do have it all in your head and you have to get it out. Um, that's the first step um, is making sure your staff is just as educated about all your contacts as you are. Um, so that's been a long time coming and what we work really hard on. But secondly, 
it is hard. And um, we're still figuring that out ourselves because sometimes things happen by happenstance and sometimes it's very designed and deliberate that we know this is happening. And so we hired um, a program coordinator and part of her job is information and referral. Um, so our partner agencies know they can call her if they have a question about someone that they may not know what to do with. And then we also get those calls from the community and then we connect them. And we're just now starting to kind of keep that database together and going back and saying, okay, partner agencies, tell me exactly what it is more that you do because I'm getting these calls and I don't know if you can help. Um, and during the pandemic, that was such a challenge because so many people shut down. Um, and so there was not a lot of places to refer people to. So we're almost kind of like ground zero building that process back up. Who's who's still open, who's still taking new clients, who are you know, taking new clients or maybe only still just serving their, you know, because of COVID serving who they currently had. And um, so we're trying to figure out if we can make that work, you know, like we're gonna see. Um, we used to bring everybody in, all of our partner agencies um, once a quarter. And that whole part of that, uh, last part of it was just networking. So they could talk to each other and connect, um, but we haven't been able to have in person. So we've tried it virtually for a little bit. So those are just, different strategies um, that we're working on and gonna try and see um, if we can get good data out of that and if it is working. So one additional question came in from the audience, which is uh, that many student innovators are really hoping to start nonprofits. What are some changes you see in the future of nonprofits and what would you want to tell them as they get started? that's a great question and I get calls from people wanting to start nonprofits all the time and I always tell people it's my job to talk you out of it um, and if at the end of it you still want to do it then okay let's talk because it is very difficult it is very challenging like we pointed out at the beginning it's not like starting a business it's very there are very different regulations and challenges um, so I will talk you out of it first and if you still want to do it fine we'll talk some more um, but one of the things if you're interested in starting a nonprofit really make sure you know what the need is and make sure no one else is doing it. Um, and if somebody else is doing it and doing it well, find out what you can do to support and supplement rather than reinvent the wheel. Because like you said, in, in Atlanta, oh my goodness, I mean, I can't even tell you how many nonprofits there are. It's, it's, there's so many. So make sure it's not being done in your area. Do your research. Make sure um, the worst thing you can do is, you know, recreate the wheel or duplicate services that are already done, being done and do it well. And then what I would tell every single person, if you do decide to run a nonprofit, run it like a business. Um, you should absolutely have a profit. What a nonprofit means is that you don't give out your profit to shareholders and investors. You know, your board members are volunteer board members, um, but you should operate with a positive budget. Um, so that you can keep your operations going. And so run like a business. That's why I know Liz has been on the call. Like we decided to engage with a PR firm. Like a lot of businesses have marketing and PR. We do too. And that's a game changer for us. So operate like you're a business. Um, understand business as well as the nonprofit sector. And that is such great advice. And too often, I think students see uh, those two in opposition. They assume that uh, they're mutually exclusive or that best practices are radically divergent in the two. And I think that everything you put your finger on is a real lesson. Um, I'll just say by way of conclusion that this has been really fun for me. Uh, I Both because I think the mission of your work is so important, 
but also the clarity with which you've articulated everything from your purpose to your business model, to your operational model, to the communication strategy. I think it's something of a masterclass for folks working uh, on or interested in starting a, a nonprofit. And I mean that very seriously. So yeah. this has been a huge pleasure and I think it's gonna be a really great resource for folks moving forward. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's so fun. Um, I love talking and I love getting the opportunity to share. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.